Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Orr, CEO and co-founder of Permit.io, and we discuss how both empathy for your customers and frustration with a problem leads to great products, the philosophy of product-led growth, and keeping your head above the trenches as a leader. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. And uh, it's essentially also what I try to do. So I'm a developer at heart. I love software. And so I want to cater to other people like myself, to other developers. And that's why I've been creating DevTools for quite a while now. Nice. Yeah. How did you get into that initially? So I started pretty early. I got lucky. I started writing software or code to some degree at the age of five. My sister kind of, we're talking like, like uh, early 90s, and my sister uh, kind of convinced my parents to buy this very basic uh, computer, now looking in retrospect, but uh, it was still able to run games. So I was, as a kid, I was just like, she showed me how I can, from like a DOS command, how I can start a different games. And that kind of just got me started, both with English and with, uh, and with running commands on the uh, machine. And from there, it was kind of a deep rabbit hole that um, I still haven't really emerged at the other side of it. But I think that what really was the biggest leap in my work in tech was uh, my military service. So I served in a unit called 8200, which is part of the intelligence core in the IDF. Uh, it's equivalent to the NSA or GCHQ. Also got to work a bit with those folks, which is kind of cool. And there I really worked on, so I was an engineer and I worked with software before, but in that scenario, like you work on things that have immediate impact on life and death situations. And that really forces you to deeply understand your software and all its minute aspects. And I think that really took me multiple levels uh, upward in my capabilities and also in my passion for software. So what kind of software tools are you building in the intelligence? It, I don't know, industry is the wrong word, core. but <laughs> intelligence core. In, intelligence community, if you like, if you want to refer yeah, to it yeah. in a wider sense. So first of all, I, I can't really tell you or I can tell you, but then I'll have to kill you. So <laughs> I'm not sure it's, that's the right way to go with this podcast. Uh, but to without saying too much and just using some common sense, in the end of the day, intelligence solutions or intelligence organizations are responsible for collecting intelligence to protect the interests of their countries and their people. So in the end of the day, you're building things that help collect the data, organize it, find the actual interesting bits of information within it, and similar things like that in multiple areas. There's SIGINT, which is signal intelligence. There's cyber, which everyone knows by now. And there's things like VISINT, like the ability to analyze visual information. So maybe that's the most easy thing. Like you have a satellite, it can take pictures from outer space or from orbit, and then you need to actually analyze those maybe fuzzy images and understand where's the ground troop layout of the enemy or where a new nuclear silo is being built or whatever. These are not actual examples, but things that are easy to imagine. Right, cool. Well, so to avoid 
digging deeper <laughs> onto the, the topic that could and yeah. risking my life. Um, <laughs> so what did you start doing professionally after you got out of the service? What was uh, kind of your first civilian jobs? So I worked in a startup called Antigua, and we basically did containers before containers were a thing, but with a really bad go-to-market. Like we built really amazing, super complex technology there, but I think really missed on actually building it in a way that people would be uh, find it easy to adopt. And in the end of the day, something a lot simpler like Docker rose to fame and kind of consumed most of that market. They ended up kind of spoiling their own go-to-market, but that's a different kind of story. Cool. Well, what inspired you to create your current company? And did you have a co-founder? How did you meet them? So maybe I can just continue the story from that point in time chronologically. So after Antigua, where I was one of the first engineers, um, I then worked in a couple of other startups. I was a VP of R&D in a cybersecurity company. And then in late 2016, I co-founded and ran as CEO of a company called Rookout, which is another dev tool solution. Oh, no way. Um, we had Rookout's CTO, Liron. Liron. Yeah. yeah, so Liron was my co-founder nice. in Rookout. And uh, during my time in Rookout, we ended up rebuilding our access control to the product itself five times when the company wasn't even three years old. And I was like, well, that's stupid. I don't want to do it <laughs> once, let alone five times. And kind of taking a step back and, and thinking about it, I realized that I've been building permissions for my different products throughout my career, like thousands of times. And again, at no point did I want to. It's like a stupid necessity. I got together with uh, Asaf, who's a good friend and now my co-founder, and he worked at Facebook at the time. And through that, we kind of saw that Facebook, for example, invested a team of 30 people for half a decade to build the level of access control that they have. And they're still continuing to build it onwards. So that kind of painted the picture of both how annoying and complex it is for developers today, especially with the move to the cloud, especially with microservices, especially with multi-tenancy. But more importantly, that the problem is only getting worse. It's only going to get more complex as the software itself is getting more complex and the players interacting with it is, are getting more complex. So up till now, it was mostly like human users using your software, but more and more, it's becoming other software, other automated agents on behalf of other automated agents, on behalf of other automated agents, <laughs> on behalf of humans somewhere down the line that actually use the software you've built. And the speed and the complexity and the amount of connectivity that exists is just mind-blowing. Just thinking about all those level of permissions and the way you need to shape your software for them, that can be a bit overwhelming even just to think about it. So that really kind of brought us to, to understand that this is an important problem to work on, both for now and also for the upcoming future. That reminds me of, we, we have an episode coming up with a company called Flatfile, and their founder describes what you're talking about. Of They have tools for importing data and cleaning that data on import so that it's more useful. And he had to build those tools over and over again. And he calls it rage design because he's just so <laughs> mad that he has to build it. So he sat down and made it a off-the-shelf solution. Yeah, I think those are the things that are 
like the best source materials for creating companies, things that you are actually passionate about, pain that you're actually feeling yourself, that makes sure that at least one thing happens. You have empathy for your customers. You actually understand what they want and you're not guessing or a lot of times, especially with uh, more technological folks like ourselves, usually you get excited by this tech idea and you're like, oh, let's see if we can find things that we can do with this. And sometimes that works, but most often not, you miss the mark because you're not actually caring for what your customers, what the people actually want. Yeah, I mean, people talk a lot about how important it is to be close to the customer, but if it's pain that you are personally experiencing, you are the customer. So seems like exactly. a good uh, scenario. So how long have you been working on Permit for? Um, about a Well, it depends on how you count it, but I'd say like a year and a half, getting close to two years now. Very cool. So... What stage of growth is the company at and what, what kind of problems are you solving on a day-to-day basis today? So we started with like, we almost bootstrapped for a year, focusing initially mostly on an open source offering, a project called Opal, which we built on top of a, another open source project called OPA, Open Policy Agent, which is pretty well known. Opal itself is also becoming very, very popular these days, already running in production in companies like Tesla, Zapier, Accenture, and dozens of others. So we took those and we built permits as a service on top of that, adding more capabilities, mainly the experiences that you need to build access control into your product. So a lot of products out there try to give you the infrastructure, like uh, a policy engine, APIs that you can play with. But we're kind of coming from empathy. We really understand that that's not what developers want. Developers want to get this problem off their table. No one is excited about building access control. No one is going, yay, I really want to get that access control ticket. I really <laughs> want to add another role to the system. No, that, that doesn't happen. People are like a developer getting this ticket. just how can I get rid of this as quickly as possible and make sure that this ticket doesn't come back uh, in another way or form. And the main problem with uh, access control is, I like to call it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. There's always another requirement from another user, from another uh, stakeholder in the company, the product manager, security, compliance, partners. There's always something. And in the end of the day, none of these things are unique. So I'll, I'll just list a few experiences that usually you need to build into an application. And you'll see as I list them that you've seen all of them like a billion times. But the sad thing is every time you saw them, some poor schlep of a developer had to create them from scratch. So user management with the ability to assign roles, API key management, secrets management, audit logs, aka the ability to see who did what within the system. As a developer, you want to see what all the tenants did and you want each tenant to be able to see on their own what they did within the system. Multi-tenancy. Obviously, if you're with microservices, you, you want to have multi-tenancy. Approval flows, the ability to ask permissions from another user. Invites, emergency access, and the list really goes on and on and on. And none of these things are unique, but building them from scratch every time is a pain in the ass. So instead of just giving you an API and telling you, Go ahead, build all these awesome things yourself. We actually provide those out of the box, but we provide them with low-code, no-code interfaces that generate code. 
So for example, our policy editor that allows you to create new roles, new permissions, it creates code in a language called Rego and soon in other languages that you can run on open policy agent. So you can maintain policy as code, but still have the product manager. Let's say the product manager comes in, say, this new customer needs another two roles that are specific to their use in the system. So instead of opening a ticket and having like an R&D sprint on adding those capabilities, you can literally tell them, dude, it's like, go click on add role, check a few checkboxes and you're done. You don't need me for this. Just just go away. I have better things to do. I have an actual product with actual unique features that I want to build. So this is kind of empowering for everyone, the developers themselves, which are the people we focus on. But through them, the entire organization gets empowered. And what we're focusing on now, getting back to the actual question that you asked with this additional background. Uh, so what we're working on now is really taking it to the, to the next level. So up till now, we re- provided role-based access control. Maybe I should recap that too. So when you're building an application, everyone starts with uh, the most basic policy model, which is admin and not admin. Right. So I'm the admin. I can do whatever I want. I have all the permissions and everyone else is not an admin. But then you get a requirement that some other people should have some more permissions. And then you move to admin, non-admin and super admin. And then you move to access control list and then to role-based access control and then role-based access control plus something, plus ownership, plus time, plus geolocation, plus some kind of attribute. And then you move to attribute-based access control as you pile on more attributes on the R back. And then you sometimes move to relationship-based access control and uh, other stuff like that. And demands are constantly, as I said before, are constantly coming. And the idea with what we try to do is that you don't actually have to understand all these models and you can run between them with ease. But we started by supporting RBAC, role-based access control, which is probably the most familiar one. But it's not the most powerful one. It doesn't cover all the cases. So now what we're bringing to the table and by taking it to the next level is with attribute-based access control, allowing you to create all those complex policies, all those complex conditions without having to write code, without having to understand all the models in depth, without having to uh, know rego that policy language, but still have everything generated as code and maintained into a Git repository in a way that everyone can play with. And, and so that's what we are really focusing on now, making it fulfilling the promise end-to-end, not just enabling this, but enabling this end-to-end. So everyone at the party, all the other stakeholders, the product managers, security compliance, can all enjoy the full power of policy as code. That is crazy to me that it, you have to build from scratch at every company just the ability to have the most basic level of admin and non-admin per- permissions within your company. I hadn't thought about that before, and that totally makes sense why you're running a company off of solving that problem. It's kind of silly. Like I think it was annoying for a while now. I think the problem has been silly in the way it affects so many people for at least a decade now, but with the move to microservices and like the incoming scale, it's moving from being stupid to being ridiculous. And uh, we could probably have started this company slightly earlier, but I think now it's like, it's not a moment too soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like a pretty, you, permit has to be pretty deeply embedded in the stack of 
whatever company you're working with. What's like the time frame from when you initially start working with another company to when you're fully up and running and people are able to just click the button to assign roles? Yeah, that's a terrific question because truly uh, authorization or permissions as opposed to authentication is a far more deeper, more deeply ingrained problem than authentication. It's for every basic request that is handled by the application, you need to test for permissions as opposed to authentication, which just happens at the gate where you just log in and then you continue with that verified identity throughout your application. With authorization, again, with every action you do, you need to apply some enforcement, some checks and some enforcement. And that is definitely part of the challenge, but we're leveraging a lot of our advantage from coming from like the intelligence core cybersecurity background and knowing how to create solutions that are easily embedded into software without hindering that software. And a lot of the architecture that we've created both for Permit itself and for Opal, the open source project that we have, really speed up that process, really make it easier and less painful for you as someone adopting it. And I can elaborate on on the architecture, but I'll take a step back first and just tell you how it usually looks. And the, the bottom line is one developer with a couple of weeks can take a mid-sized company to use Permit on their own, single-handedly, moving from their existing homebrew solution to using Permit end-to-end in production. And the best thing is that they can do so without having to talk to anyone. Like we're available, like if someone wants to, it's really easy to reach out to us. Like there's a Calendly link on our homepage. If you click on it, pick a date, I show up on Zoom like, <laughs> uh, like magic. Maybe you regret it because then you're, you're talking to me, but still, you, that, that's what happens. So you have that option, but you don't have to. It's really, we've been doing self-service from day one and the solution is really built so you can adopt it on your own and very quickly get started. Uh, like I think like within a couple of minutes, like 15 minutes, 30 minutes, you can take a small application and have it run with permit. And uh, within, as I said, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, you can take your entire production and migrate it. We also have like guidelines, how to do it safely, gradually. Like uh, you can go gung-ho, but uh, we also encourage you to run it side by side with your existing solution for it, at least for one point. So, so you have confidence in uh, how you're rolling with it as you're going into production. But yeah, that's that's kind of the bottom line. It's while it is complex, we really handle most of that complexity for you. Nice, that's that's amazing. Um, and I I like how you mentioned the difference between authentication and permission access management because that reminds me of we talked to the CTO of Zscaler on the podcast a while ago. They're a large security firm. And he talked about thinking of insecurity as like two different models, like the old way of thinking. He calls it the coconut security model, while the new way is the avocado security model, where the coconut is there's just a hard outer shell. But once you're inside, it's all just liquid sloshing around. And you can go anywhere you want once you're once you've penetrated the outer shell. But then with the avocado security model, you have like an outer shell mm-hmm. and then there's like some resistance inside. It's not just liquid. And then there's another core on the inside that you can't get into after you've broken through the outer shell. And the analogy there is that the second model is using permission-based access management uh, and not just get your password and you're in and you access everything. 
Yeah, it's really you don't want to have a single point of failure or have like a, a weakest link element. So a weakest link element, something that is unavoidable, it's really at the core at, of building security. And I think in the end of the day, moving to microservices and moving to more kind of granular architectures can give you that zero trust capability for every small element. The challenge is that now is you need to manage it for each of those small elements. So you naturally have the option or the advantage of building more granular security and more layers of defense, uh, but it's still left up to you to actually manage it. So that's what we're kind of trying to make easier, giving you the interfaces, you and the other stakeholder you're working with to make it easier to do while baking in all of those zero trust components right into what you're using. And I think these things nowadays are mandatory. You have to recognize the weakest link principle. You have to recognize that you have a very large, complex space that you need to defend. And you have to recognize that there's so much to understand that it's basically nonsensical to expect that you can do all this on your own. It's much better to adopt best practices and ideally even tools that can bring this for you to the table. Uh, This is why when I'm talking to fellow engineers or fellow security practitioners, what I really try to tell them is it's okay to build these things on your own, but you better stick to the uh, well-trodden path. You better stick to the at least the best practices. And if you can, the open source projects that have those best practices kind of baked in. And ideally, if you have the capacity for it, services that can take you end-to-end so you can actually focus on the things that you know best, as opposed to cryptography, as opposed to the differences between all the policy models, as opposed to managing the different languages and how you manage and how you write in them the right policies that are both performance and secure, just as examples. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about leadership. Is that cool? Yeah. Awesome. So I know that you're a big proponent of product-led growth model at a, at a company. Can you give me an overview of what that means at Permit? Yeah, for sure. First of all, product-led growth is a go-to-market strategy. It's a way that you think about how your product, your company, is going to meet up with the market. And product-led growth, in essence, means putting the product itself up front and removing as much friction as possible so people can enjoy the product itself. And if you hear it just on a baseline, it just sounds, yeah, that's, that makes total sense. But we need to remember, especially the younger folks, we need to remember that up till now, that's not how products went to market. Products went to market through a large bow-tied or otherwise sleek uh, salespeople, sales operation, going in, knocking on doors and convincing people to try out the, this new amazing product from this and that. Nowadays, and still most, like the biggest companies are still selling to market with this kind of layout, but it's becoming apparent that this doesn't fit fit the uh, consumer culture anymore. So most sales operations, for example, are dependent on getting leads. So you do cold calls and you do conferences and then you chase over people and you send them messages on LinkedIn. And I don't know about you, but... Uh, with me, the first thing that happens if someone calls me is that I get annoyed. 
what the hell is someone calling you? Yep. <laughs> and if I, for some reason, decide to answer that and someone starts to pitch and sell me, selling me something that I didn't ask for and I don't care about, I'm not only annoyed, I'm furious at that point. <laughs> so expecting people, uh, if you're building a product and you expect people to, no matter how good your product is, if you expect people to tolerate that, I'd say, rude behavior, I think you have an, another thing coming. So product-led growth is really being aligned with the modern consumer culture. And it's really being aligned with being a decent human being and not bothering people. And the way to do it, so so a lot of people would ask at this point, so how do I the hell do I get people to actually learn about my product if I don't push it on them? And the answer is simple. Just tell people, put out the message that the product exists, and then just let them try out the product. Let them try it before they buy it. Create alignment points where they can get a taste of the actual value of the product. And if they're interested, you'll be surprised. They actually raise their hands and go in and want to talk to you instead of you having to chase them. So an interesting side effect this has for companies is it creates much more efficient sales cycles. It increases the margins and Maybe most importantly, it's better on the soul. You don't feel like you're forcing people's hands. And specifically with developers, developers have a keen eye to anything that is salesy or too markety. And like, if you, I advise people to try this, like in a conference, go go up to a developer and start selling them a pitch. You'll see their eyes glaze over instantly. Like, they'll be there, they'll stand and hear your pitch, but it's essentially going directly to DevNull. Um, <laughs> so what I uh, recommend instead with PLG is, again, create a product that people can use with ease. Remove as much friction as possible so people can start getting understanding of what it is, understanding of what its value, and actually tasting that value as soon as possible. And that's exactly what we have doing with Permit. So from day one, we offered self-service. From day one, we were completely transparent about our pricing and what's in the open source and what's not in the open source. We were uh, always available to talk to people, but never forcing our hands on them. So we're, we're just putting ourselves out there. And I'm doing, I spend most of my time, like every week, talking to customers and all of them are inbound. All of them are coming to me most often after they tried out the product because they could and it was interesting to them. And that's really why I think PLG just makes a ton of sense. And I was surprised by investors and other people that kept kind of clamoring or trying to latch back to the old world of enterprise sales. I think it can be relevant for a lot of, uh, a lot of ventures, a lot of companies but for most companies and definitely companies selling to developers, I think PLG is like possibly the only way to go. Yeah. So did you have sales experience before you started Permit? So in my previous company, so Rookout is a dev tools company, but it's enterprise top down. So it's the complete opposite go to market. And while the company uh, definitely has a lot of customers and it's selling well, I couldn't ignore the amount of friction it takes to engage with a customer. And maybe another point that is relevant there is the direction of the engagement. So if you work with the developer themselves, they are able to adopt things quickly and push them into the organization and also facilitate purchasing very quickly. They have a lot of clout as people controlling the 
the software itself, which is a lot of time the heart of any software company or software-driven company, which is essentially all companies at this point, or m- almost all companies at this point. But if you go the other way around, if you go top-down, it means that you are selling to their managers, like the team leads or the VP of R&D or CTO, or maybe even another executive at the company. And then what happens is that that person goes to their developers and tell them, I think this is the tool you need to use. And you know what the effect that, that has? That has the completely reverse effect to the one you want. <laughs> yep. Because if there's something that developers hate, is being told what tools to use, especially by people that are not hands-in on the work and don't actually know what is needed. So it's actually a surefire way to create more friction for your sales operation. And I think that's just a shame. Like it, it can be a lot easier and creates a lot more alignment if you're aligned with how your customers want to buy the product and not just how you want them to buy the product. Yeah, that's a trend I'm seeing It uh, talking to lots of tech leaders is selling directly to the developers or I'm hearing a lot of organizations that uh, used to be top-down and their whole reason for coming on podcasts and talking to people like me is that they're trying to get out to the world that they're selling directly to developers. They're trying to reach the developers directly. And hearing you talk about it, I love the way you you do discuss it because I can so hear the passion that you are a developer and you just want to speak to people the way you would want to be spoken to. It's basically common decency when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the bigger corporations are now latching onto this trend as it's kind of engulfing the market and there's more conversations around it and they can also see the impact for it. I think one of the most interesting uh, test cases for this is the revolution that happened in the APM world, in the monitoring world for, uh, for software. I had the good fortune of actually being at the sidelines, talking to the people and seeing it happen. So if you go back to, say, 2016, and talking to the leaders of the APM world, primarily AppDynamics and New Relic, both founders of two companies came out of Wiley. And so they were like arch enemies of one another, kind of competing on the same market. And basically they, and Dynatrace to some degree, kind of dominated the space. And when you talk to them, you ask them, what, where are you headed? What are you working on in terms of the market? And they're like, we are focused on the enemy, which if you're at New Relic, it would be AppDynamics. If you're at AppDynamics, it would be New Relic. And, like, and it was also like Voldemort. You don't mention their name. It's like the <laughs> enemy. We have, we have to defeat the enemy. It's us and them to dominate the market. And I was like, yeah, but what about this tiny company, uh, Datadog? They seem to be growing quickly and have unique things to offer. And they're like... Pfft. Datadog, they're, they small, sell to only like small companies. They have like this uh, mid-market, bottom-up approach. That's nonsense. We're selling top-down to the uh, Fortune 500 companies. We don't care about that. Speed forward a couple of years, not many, like 2018, 2019, you talk to AppD or New Relic and, they're, and you ask them, hey, how's it going if you're a fight with the enemy? What, you mean those guys? No, 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 they're not in- interesting. It's all about Datadog now. They're eating the market. We have to uh, catch up with them. Right. And you speed up a little further, get to current times, like a year ago, two years ago, and AppDynamics is essentially dead. They were acquired by Cisco and gradually just faded away. Like no one from the original company is there anymore. And they're struggling just to maintain their existing clientele, even losing foothold in India, which was their like 
primary uh, example for the market. And uh, and um, Neuralic, well, I'll get you Neuralic, Neuralic in a sec. Let's look at Neuralic and Datadog. So Neuralic was like the bigger company, right? Um, and uh, Datadog was like a tiny thing. And if you look at the market cap graph, it's really interesting to see the intersection point and then to see where things are now. And uh, like last time I looked, I think Neuralic was at $3 billion valuation and Datadog at $33 billion valuation. <laughs> and so, and as, as I said, AppDynamics is basically fading and Neuralic is still fighting, it's still there. Uh, you want to guess how they're kind of still surviving? They adopted the bottom-up approach. <laughs> exactly. They spent a year and more pivoting from top-down sales to product-led growth bottom-up. They're still struggling just to make ends meet, but they're there and they're changing to meet the, the these newer times. And I think this story really highlights two things. One in the end of the day, when push comes to shove, the wider market access gives you the advantage. And two, the incumbent, even if they're bigger, they don't have the advantage unless they're aligned with how the market wants to buy the product. And I think that just appealing to anyone looking at a market with incumbent players or with a future where they want to remain a leading player in that space. And with that, I think... In most scenarios, you you just can't ignore product that growth. Definitely not forever. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious for you personally, as a longtime developer, how did you decide as a co-founder to be CEO of your company rather than CTO or like lead engineer? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, So initially, like there was another startup that I worked on that I co-founded and I was the CTO there, a company called Reactful, which actually, I think by the time this podcast would be released, the, the acquisition would be announced, which is kind of nice. But there, like, I was, I'm, a, I'm a tech person. I'm very well connected to the technology. I'm passionate about it. And uh, that's probably where I should stay, right? But working on that company and also looking at other ventures, I realized that technology... And like, if you want to make a change in the world, if you want to actually create a product that succeeds, technology is a really small part of it in, in actuality. The marketing of it, the strategy of it, the how you connect this to the people uh, is in more cases than not the more critical element. And in the end of the day, when I think about myself as an engineer, as a developer, it's all about creating I really view it as an art form. I'm not like I'm good with maths, but for me, technology and software is really about creating things that empower or connect to kindred spirits. That's that's my that's my thing. And so I realized that if I want to really drive that impact, uh, I can't just focus exclusively on the technology. And so I started to learn more about go to market. I decided I started to learn more about how you do sales and how you do marketing, and how you do partnerships, and how you connect to other people. And I started to get passionate about that too, because that's also creating, and that's also working with kindred spirits. And uh, and I guess I just got swept away in some way. That's really cool. Well, on the on the topic of like people, I want to hear a little bit about 
hiring because that's something I'm always interested in. Um, it's kind of been top of mind mm-hmm. for me recently because we had this company called Lemon on the show, which they're a really cool company that provides like pre-vetted, experienced remote devs to com- other companies around the world, which is a very interesting value prop because those kinds of people are hard to find. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm curious, how do you go about attracting and retaining top talent at Permit? That's a terrific question. So first of all, if, uh, we should probably say that it's very different doing hiring for a early stage young startup and doing it for later stages. Having done both, I can say it's like worlds apart. Both in what you're offering people and both the people that you actually need. And I'll focus on what you actually need. And I think early on in a startup, because of all the chaos and all of the high velocity and all the intense, quick requirements that come from the market, and you don't have, because it's not a big organization, so you don't have a lot of things shielding you. Like every little thing, everyone on the boat feels the tremors. Yeah. So what you need, you need, I think at least, you think you need very capable, independent people. You need people that can uh, embrace that chaos, find what they need within it, and charge forward. In general, the mentality that I really like, and it also kind of goes back to my military background in that unit in 8200, it's really about being back-to-back in the trenches, knowing that you can trust the other person next to you, and knowing that everyone's charging at their own goals, at their own uh, targets, independently but they but they but they have your back so that combination between independence and teamwork is i'd say the core most critical thing even more than specific skill set obviously you need a specific skill set for the different things that you need to build but if you don't have that commando mentality i think it makes everything a lot harder and if you have it and it's a common theme throughout your team you can really charge forward and lift or tackle far greater than your actual weight. I love that, the commando mentality. <laughs> so when when you're like, so obviously the interview process for hiring people, you don't get to know them on a super deep level in the small amount of time you get to spend with them before mm-hmm. making the decision. How do you identify people that have the commando mentality in that small amount of time you get before you have to decide whether or not to hire them? Yeah, so first of all, you don't necessarily need to, they don't need to have it in advance. They need to have the affinity or capability to adopt it. And what I usually do in interviews, so first of all, I just spend some time talking to the person as a person, just kind of like a date, (laughs) awkwardly, but kind of like a date. Just tell me a little bit about yourself. I want to know what you're passionate about. I want to know what's important to you in life. I want to know what's important for you in this job. I want to know what do you expect to get out of it? Where do you want to be in a few years from now? What's the trajectory of your evolution, of your improvement? In general, I believe that companies grow if the people in it grow. So if you're, it's really important for me that everyone within Pyramid or any other company I work at, that each individual gets out more skillful, better as a person than how they got into the company. Because that makes sure that the entire company as a whole would improve. And aside from that, what I like to do with technical positions is I ask people to tell me about a project that they have built and they're really proud of. 
So that does two things. One, it removes a lot of noise because if you ask people just, you know, tell, let's do FizzBuzz or let's uh, solve this uh, uh, ridiculous computer science questions or I don't know, do a uh, binary tree, all, all those silly things. You don't, you're kind of gambling on what that person should know or not know. And while people have some mutual backgrounds, like basic computer science education, they're not all the same person. And if they don't know, like, I don't know, like to, in the most optimized sense, how to uh, search a binary tree, that doesn't mean they're not a good engineer. That's like a very specific thing that they can look up. Yeah. So I find those really, really silly. So I prefer to ask uh, something that the person f- feels and thinks that they're good at. So that minimizes a lot of their noise around the, the thing. So we have to, at least an agreement. This is this is something that you should be good at if we're talk if you chose to talk about it. And then I just spend some time hearing about the project. So that's an opportunity to see how the person thinks about building things, how they talk about things that they are passionate about, how they explain technology that might be complex, but they have good understanding of. And then what I like to do is take it another notch up. So it's always easy, no matter what you've built, there's always another feature that can be added. There's always another classic problem with a asynchronous or, or multi-threading or greater scale or uh, another type of database or another type of interface that can be added. And then you can see in real time that person think about a problem that they have a good standing at, but they're tackling something new and they can have that conversation with you. And... I think that most times really quickly separates the chafe from the, I forgot the expression. Wheat from the chaff. uh, Thank you. (laughs) It really quickly gets you to have in-depth conversation about real things and not just make-believe scenarios. And sometimes I also like to kind of try and take it to the actual problem I'm trying to solve now. And oftentimes it's not that hard because a lot of complex systems share the same complex problems. Well, fantastic answer and advice. I'm definitely going to use it as I'm c- continue hiring at at my company. But I got one more question for you before we wrap up. If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice the first time you moved from individual contributor to manager, what would you want to know? Hmm. I think the best advice I could give myself in that sense would be one understand the greater picture. So when you you got your head kind of deep in the trenches, deep into the material, it's hard to telescope and zoom out and see uh, all the other elements that are part of the challenge. And it's sometimes it can be surprising to realize that there's a lot more complexity on the macro level than there is on the micro level. For example, with the go-to-market or with how people want to try out the product, or with the user experience, or with how you actually get to uh, build a business on it or commercialize on it. Those things can be as complex as build, as solving uh, critical driver synchronous uh, solutions in like the kernel of like the operating system. And sometimes, unless you actually spend the time to give that attention, and realize that that's a complex system too, you can miss out on that. And then as a manager, you miss out on translating and communicating that to the rest of the people. And I think that's the most important, one of the most important thing a manager does is creating alignment between the higher level, potentially the entire company, and the individual. Uh, Understanding 
where this individual wants to be, where the company wants to be, and how those areas intersect. And you can only do that if you fully understand both, if you fully understand the person in front of you, and you fully understand where the company needs to go. Well, or I think that's a great spot to, to end off on. Before we wrap up for real, is there any extra shout out you want to make? Any call to action you, you want our listeners to hear? So I have two. So we talked about product-led growth. One of the other things that I do is I run a, a group for founders called Upwards. It's I used to say that it's like the biggest product-led growth founders group in Israel. Now it's like probably the biggest in the world. Several hundred founders all working actively in product-led growth. And uh, you can reach out to me and you can join that group. We do monthly fireside chat sessions with market leaders like the CEO of GitHub, founder of Bitnami, people from LunchDarkly, uh, a lot of awesome people anyway. So I invite everyone to join the group. Everyone's a founder who's actively working on product that growth is more than uh, welcome. The other one is like, just if you want to talk to me, like if you're working on a venture or if you're building a piece of technology that needs help with DevSecOps or with uh, uh, permissions specifically, obviously, it's really easy to reach out to me. Look at at Orweiss, O-R-W-E-I-S, on GitHub, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Reddit, wherever you want, and just shoot me a message. And I think most people are surprised on how happy I am to engage with people that just want to talk about something uh, as opposed to trying to sell me something. <laughs> connecting to what we chat on before. So yeah, I really want to encourage people to try this out. And obviously, if you're working on building permissions and you want to actually focus on building your product, I'd love it if you check Opal and if you check Permit at uh, permit.io. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.